to the Norse Up podcast, a production for NKU by NKU to highlight the expertise of our university's faculty and staff. Joining me as usual is my co-host Clayton Castle. Today we're talking with political science professor Ryan Salzman about election day and a few must-know facts for those voting for the first time. Dr. Salzman has been teaching at NKU since 2012 and coordinates the university's legislative internship program at the Kentucky State Capitol. He also serves on Bellevue City Council and specializes in the study of placemaking, a people-centered approach to the planning and design of public spaces. Dr. Salzman, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. And as Clayton mentioned, uh, the concept of placemaking sort of does intersect with the uh, local politics and your study of them. So what does placemaking look like within our local context? Yeah, placemaking is really simple. And so uh, when you start to have it defined, it it makes a lot of sense. And you realize that it's happening around you a lot. And really, it's been happening in Mm -hmm. civilization since... um, since we started to have civilization and society. So it's as simple as taking a space and activating it to make it a place. And so things that we're familiar with in the really modern context would be things like little free libraries, community gardens, public art, you know, painting a crosswalk, uh, murals, but also a lot of pop-up events. So a pop-up market. Um, But we could also think more classically about things like libraries and plazas. But when we think about today, what we're really thinking about with placemaking are some of these uh, community development engagements that are being done. Again, things like community gardens, probably a really good example of that. Yeah. And you've served on Bellevue City Council since 2014. Uh, What made you decide to take the plunge into the political arena? And how does the concept of placemaking fit into your political career? Yeah, no, that's a great question, because usually the first thing you learn when you study politics is you never do politics. That's just a bad idea. It's just a bad idea. But when you live in a community and you feel committed to that community and you realize that there's a place that you can help, it can be very natural to also just want to get involved. And I was lucky enough to live in Bellevue. Bellevue is a very small community. If if, uh, your listeners aren't that familiar, it's only one square mile, but it has 6,000 people in it. And there was an opportunity to run for city council. And I was encouraged to do so after being there for a couple of years and being very politically active. And so I said, sure, you know, I'll do that. And and uh, had a, a few people that I knew that were also running. So it's a lot easier to commit to run when there's a, a other people that are doing it with you. But it really does tie in nicely to placemaking, even though placemaking really has very little to do with elections. It has everything to do with community. And a lot of what was happening in Bellevue was placemaking, but it was having a very kind of dramatic effect on the overall condition of the community and the way that political leaders oriented themselves to the residents of the community. Um, Community gardens were happening. Little free libraries were being built. There was talk of, you know, doing street murals, doing alley parties. And so these are often enabled by public policy decisions as well. Uh, It's not always legal to have a little free library, I learned uh, the hard way, um, or to shut down a block has its own uh, limits and regulations that are placed on that around safety. And so there's a lot that needs to be done, even to have a block party or put up a little library uh, that you don't realize. And so when you're a political leader in a small community, 
it's those small things that you spend most of your time doing. And so that in that way, it was a lot of what was already naturally happening in Bellevue that was really inspirational for me to find a place to help, which then had a feedback loop into placemaking as well. And I think if you go to a lot of the communities in Northern Kentucky, uh, and even in Cincinnati, but certainly in Northern Kentucky, you find those connections between people that are engaged in place and engaged in community building that then naturally leads to political behavior like running for elections. And tying it back into um, you know election day and running for elections, what are some of the biggest lessons you've learned? You know, being on the other side of it, you know, going from studying political science to actually being the one running for public office. Well, no election is ever easy. When I saw that this uh, current election, that the election day was November 8th, I, I can't lie, I may have said a profane word or two because it's as late as it possibly can be. And every single day that passes during an election cycle, during a campaign, it's another opportunity for somebody to be mean to you, basically. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't want to you know make it sound too petty, but with social media, but even before social media and classic campaigning, there's always a lot of discussion that's going on. And it's hard. It's hard to have some, you know, find out that somebody that you know pretty well is, is saying negative things right. about you. Um, even if you know that the competition uh, is, you know, is part of the dynamic. And that's the other thing I'd say. So while that's hard to, to deal with and, and you think you know that you're going to have to deal with it, um, but when you're in it, it's very different. It's also, there's a truism that, you know, you can't govern if you don't win. So I've seen many people, even in my community of Bellevue, have kind of a, a half-hearted approach to running for office because they, you know, believe that maybe it's not going to be that difficult or maybe it's not going to be that hard, that hard to lose. So why try too hard? Losing is hard. Um, it doesn't matter, you know, the nature of your campaign or how well liked you are. It's going to be difficult. So you're really better off pouring yourself into it and committing fully to it. And I think that then that parlays well into when you hold office, you're already ready to go. You've shown that commitment and you've invested energy. And so in a lot of ways, governing is a lot easier than campaigning. So a lot of things we teach in the classroom, but they certainly become more real when you're doing it yourself. As we've mentioned several times already, um, election day is just a few days away, November 8th. Why are elections so important for our society? Yeah, elections are the foundation of a democracy like we have in the United States. We have the kind of system where we have to choose representatives. It would be great if we were all had the time and the energy and the space to be able to uh, to influence the public policies in our systems. You know, well over 300 million people in the United States. And so in order for us to get done what needs to be done in terms of governance, we have to have elections in order to do that. And that, in you know, it used to be less significant historically, but as we become increasingly focused on national political issues, the importance of elections has ramped up, you know, in a graduated but consistent way. And so there's no American democracy without elections. Why are elections on the uh, Tuesday, the first Tuesday after the first Monday of November? It seems pretty random. It does seem random. It does seem random. Uh, elections are in the Constitution left to the states. This is a really big deal and actually helps explain a lot of the um, uh, controversies that are going on around the country right now associated with elections. And, and this is something that was really important to the founders, that it be left to the states, that the states be preeminent in that. And so they were given a window initially to execute the election 
happens like about a one month window around a date that was set in order to execute it. But the problem was there was concerns that if uh, the results were known in one area or another, that that would drive up or drive down and and just in some ways drive um, elections and what was happening in other areas. So Congress passed a law uh, right before the Civil War, a couple decades before the Civil War, uh, to set a uniform date to make those things more consistent. And that's the date that we've become familiar with. And we know today, as you're right, it's the first Tuesday following the first Monday in November. And uh, for somebody who's voting for the first time, maybe this year, what are some, you know, must know facts you need or just, you know, things you need to keep in mind for the first time? Yeah, uh, there's a lot of things on the ballot. So that's something always to remember, not just a lot of races, uh, but this year in Kentucky, there are two ballot initiatives as well. And when if you're voting in Kentucky for the first time, if you're voting in Kentucky for the 10th time, you're going to walk in and you're going to see this you know, ballot initiative number one, uh, proposition one is very, very long. And that's kind of unusual. And you weren't thinking, oh, I need, you know, as an old person like me, like, oh, do I need to bring my reading glasses with me in order to do this? And it's a lot. And it's it's dealing with some pretty significant issues. It has a lot of details in it. So this is all to say, uh, the best thing you could do is is find a sample ballot and make sure that you're familiar with all of the races on the ballot. You know, you can give yourself a cheat sheet. You can't give it to anybody else while you're at an, a polling place. Um, there's no active campaigning that can happen, which could even be talking to somebody about a race. So you have to be, you know, kind of careful. You're not going to get in a lot of trouble if you do that, but you just want to avoid it. You can't turn to the person in line and say, wait, wait, what? what's this proposition number one or prop two? So you're going to have to to know what's going on in those races. But and that's true on both sides of the river, but particularly in Kentucky this year, there's quite a few things, some nonpartisan judicial races where you're not going to be able to use your preferred political party as a cue or what we call a heuristic um, or, again, these propositions that are going to be, you know, demand a lot of your attention. So that also means allow time, because while it takes a good amount of time, if you have a number of people showing up, it's going to take even longer to get through that line if people are having to read these propositions ahead of you as well. So, uh, again, even if you're familiar with it, know that uh, that it may just take a little bit longer than many different election years recently. All right, let's go ahead and run down some of the big races here in the tri-state area, particularly Ohio and Kentucky. Let's start with the one I feel like I see ads on every platform, TV. I have, I have a sling and they're on there. They're on social media. Let's talk a little bit about the Ohio Senate race between Republican J.D. Vance um, author of Hillbilly Elegy from Middletown, Ohio, against Tim Ryan, Congressman Tim Ryan from, I believe, Youngstown, Ohio. What are, what do you make of this race? Polls show it so close. There, one poll might have Ryan up two points. Another poll might have Vance up two points. What can we expect from this race as we come down the stretch here? Well, if you know, I would love to find out. But here's what we're seeing, and this is why this race is really significant, not just uh, here you know, in the tri-state and certainly in Ohio, but nationally. You know, As a reminder, the Senate is, is split 50-50 right now. Uh, so uh, you know, this is uh, to replace outgoing Senator Rob Portman, who is a Republican. So that's something important to keep in mind. But in terms of the race itself, it's really interesting because J.D. Vance is a non-traditional candidate, which is 
Uh, it certainly has been a trend these days, but nonetheless leaves a lot of uncertainty about you know the quality of the campaign that they're going to be able to execute. And there was a lot of head scratching over the summer when J.D. Vance uh, wasn't as front and center as you would expect somebody, especially as a newer candidate, uh, to be. Then you have Tim Ryan, who's very polished. He's uh, you know been elected as a congressman multiple times, and he has a lot of you know issues that he's associated with. He's very well known in his neck of the Ohio woods. Uh, but there's also this larger question about Ohio and, you know, is Ohio really a, what we call a purple state? That is, can it truly vote either, you know, for a Democrat or a Republican, depending on the quality of the candidate and the quality of the campaign? Or as the 2016 and 2020 election and many of the statewide races uh, for governor and the like, um, is it a solidly Republican state? And are we seeing that Ohio is actually red now? So if J.D. Vance is able to win by a, you know, a significant, which is still less than 10 points to me, but more than five points margin, uh, being the kind of candidate that he is, it probably symbolizes that Ohio is is gone more that direction, particularly depending on how the other races go. But lots of reasons to pay attention. And this one could be a nail biter or it could be decided very quickly after the polls close. I couldn't even tell you which way right now. You talk a lot about um, the color of a state. So mm -hmm. meaning Ohio is a red state, meaning we traditionally vote mm -hmm. Republican or blue, we traditionally vote Democrat. Um, so we, we talked about the Senate race, how close that mm -hmm. race is. Tim Ryan could get elected, but you look at some other races in Ohio, Mike DeWine has a nearly 10-point, 15-point lead over Democrat Nan Whaley. What does that say about this state Is if, say, let's throw a hypothetical out there, if Tim Ryan wins by two points, mm -hmm. but... Mike DeWine wins by 15 points. What does that say about the makeup of Ohio's electorate? Well, that and that really does seem like a conundrum. Certainly, uh, I would kind of expand it beyond Ohio, though, for this election, because it appears that incumbent governors are doing very well. And that's probably because of their role during the pandemic. You know, they were the individuals that we looked to. They had this, you know, um, they were able to be empathetic and at the same time exude authority. And so interestingly, what we've seen is that no matter and by what we've seen, I mean, what the polling is saying and what some elections uh have shown us since the pandemic began and started abating is that if you were in that position of power, if you were the executive in a state, then you benefited by being in control, whether or not you were a Democrat or a Republican. So that could be a lot of what we're seeing there. Mike DeWine has chided, uh, charted his own course relative uh, to former President Donald Trump. Uh, which I think uh, you know has been good for him to not uh, fall into the same traps. Maybe we would say as J.D. Vance has, or some of the other senatorial candidates nationally, because they've been eager to get the endorsement of the former president. Mike DeWine's really kind of gone the opposite way. So maybe he hasn't lost some of those Republicans that were more centrist who were turned off by the former president. Um, so that's helped him. Uh, and it, then you add to it the fact that Nan Whaley is just not very well known relative. I mean, in our area, she's better known because she was the mayor of Dayton. Ohio, but uh, but nonetheless, still not very well known statewide. And so you kind of add all these things together. And, and I think, you know, 
10 points would be a minimum that Mike DeWine wins by. It could easily be 20 points. But again, some of this is a national trend. But we have to think when we're thinking about the Senate race again, that probably helps J.D. Vance. You know, we say who's leading the ballot and does this, you know, increase their margins. And, you know, hopefully that means that uh, for the Vance campaign that that's going to be good for him because they do tend to move in concert with one another. Going over to Kentucky now, the big Senate race over here, Charles Booker, the Democrat, facing off against incumbent Republican Senator Rand Paul. Charles Booker is an interesting case because he also ran in the primary two years ago and lost to Amy McGrath, who went on to lose to Mitch McConnell. So, Q, give us a little bit of analysis of what this race is shaping up to look like. Charles Booker's done a great job of establishing a brand for himself, which can be very difficult uh, when you're, you know, I don't want to say first time candidate, because like you said, he did run against Amy McGrath and almost caught her in that 2020 primary that uh, if we remember, it was delayed by a month. And and even over that month, he closed the gap quite a bit. This was in the aftermath of, um, you know, George Floyd being killed and the Black Lives Matter protests really ramping up and and Charles Booker was able to seize on a lot of that momentum to close the gap with Amy McGrath but he wasn't able to overtake her and she lost pretty handily to Senator Mitch McConnell and so Charles Booker you know if he wanted it he was going to be the presumptive nominee this time around um, he's continued to really develop that brand that political brand uh, he, he refers to you know the hood to the holler that's his his brand that he has developed and he's gotten a lot of notoriety both in the Commonwealth and beyond for doing that. Unfortunately, the moment, the historical moment has passed that he was doing so well in when he almost overtook Amy McGrath. And so when we look at the general election against Rand Paul, he's probably not going to fare very well. I think that's pretty uh, a pretty safe assumption in political circles right now. Uh, the question is, does he lose by less than 20 points or more than 20 points. And that's just not a very good um, position to be in, clearly. But it's hard to imagine a scenario where he overtakes Senator Paul, um, you know, barring some kind of major change, especially since we're only a week out from the election or so. We're running a little bit uh, um, low on time, but I do want to hit one Mm -hmm. more race. Uh, This is a really tight congressional race here Mm -hmm. in the area. Ohio's first congressional district Incumbent Steve Shab is facing off against Cincinnati City Councilman Greg Landsman, the Democrat. Um, this this uh, district has been redrawn, though, due to redistricting uh, from the census. And now it includes the entire city of Cincinnati and all of Warren County. So the metrics, I think, have moved to slightly favored Democrats. Um, but but Shabbat obviously has been in office for almost 30 years, so... You never count him out. So what? how do you look at this race? Yeah, it's a, man, that's, as much as the Ohio Senate race, if you're watching a Bengals game, you're going to get almost <laughs> as many for this uh, first congressional district in Ohio. Um, yeah, it's hard to say who's favored in this. Greg Landsman was a, formerly a councilman in uh, Cincinnati, so you know that he can win citywide. Um, and you're right, this has been redrawn, and it is more favorable for Democrats at this point. But still, Warren County itself is not going 
going to ever probably be favorable for Democrats, or at least uh, not for the next couple decades. Um, and so it's going to be a very close race. Um, the abortion issue, you know, right now after the Roe v. Wade being overturned has been favoring Democrats, but it appears that the economy has been uh, resuming its place as the top issue for most people. These things are pretty stark. You know, if you're uh, if you're focused on access to abortion, then you're going to be voting for the D. If you're focused on the economy, you're going to be vo- you know voting for the R. And so as these issues have shifted some, we might say the momentum has gone back to Chabot, but certainly the uh, the new district is going to give landsmen an edge that previous candidates against uh, Steve Chabot haven't had. Also worth noting that Steve Chabot is a NKU alum. He was a Chase, Chase, uh, Chase alum. Yeah. And so before we go, uh, are there any sort of like lower profile races or issues that you think people should look into before voting this year? Obviously, you know, you want to look into all of them, but yeah, anything else you think is worth checking out? Yeah, the state legislative races are always really important. Uh, the while, you know, in both states, Ohio and Kentucky, the Republicans are pretty dominant, particularly in, in Kentucky. Nonetheless, uh, we have some competitive races on both sides of the river. So making sure you know what uh, what you're in. We have, you know, Rachel Roberts, who is the representative for NKU and, and Northern Campbell County is going to be in a tighter race. Um, and we have Buddy Wheatley kind of in the same thing. Uh, and then a few other races where over towards Boone County uh, that is kind of self-proclaimed Liberty candidates were able to oust quite a few incumbents. And it was a really big upset back in the primary. So seeing how those play out. So making sure that you're taking that extra second, not just to look up their names and what they are, but try to find information because it can be a pretty information scarce environment when you get down to those levels. But never forget that state level matters a lot to most of us in our everyday lives. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. This has been Dr. Ryan Salzman, political science professor here at Northern Kentucky University. Be sure to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. And as always, remember to Norse up. 